beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Lord's Day 7, we spoke about faith. Faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to me in His Word. And at the same time, faith is a firm confidence that all God's promises of salvation are not just for others, but also for me. Thus, faith is very important. Faith is what binds us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Without faith, you cannot be saved. Each one of us personally needs to believe the promises of the gospel. These promises are summarized for us in the articles of the Apostles' Creed. Lord's Day 8 gives us an overview of the articles of our Catholic undoubted Christian faith, divides the 12 articles of our faith into three sections. The first article relates to God the Father and our creation. Articles 2 through 7 relate to God the Son and our redemption. Articles 8 through 12 to God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. And thus the Apostles' Creed provides us a summary of the works of our triune God. And before we get to that, our catechism focuses on the doctrine of the Trinity. For if we're saved only by true faith, then we need to know who God is so that we may put our faith and trust in Him. This afternoon, we're going to focus our attention on the doctrine of the Trinity, on the fact that we serve one God who has made Himself known as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This teaching is something that we cannot fully understand. It's incomprehensible to us that on the one hand, the Lord our God is one God, and that on the other hand, He exists in three persons. Yet God is God. And we are but creatures, intelligent creatures, yes, but not on the same level as God. And thus, even though we cannot fully understand, we're nevertheless called to believe the doctrine of the Trinity, because this is the way that God has made Himself known to us in His Word. I preach to you God's Word under the following theme, God calls us to know Him as triune God. We'll consider God's revelation, God's promises, and God's call. This afternoon, my task is to explain to you something that I do not fully understand. It's to make clear something that is incomprehensible to man. How on the one hand, there is but one God, and how on the other hand, this God exists in three persons. Our Athanasian Creed provides a beautiful summary of what we believe about our triune God. It speaks about how we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity without either confusing the persons or dividing the substance. It speaks about how the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and yet there's not three gods, but there is one God says that the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord. But they're not three lords, 
but one Lord. Can you understand it, beloved? Neither can I. The problem is that we're here dealing with one of the mysteries of our faith. We're trying to understand something, we're trying to understand someone who is incomprehensible. The difficulty we face is that God is greater than anything in creation. We have nothing with which to classify Him. We don't have a standard with which to compare Him to. You know, if you talk about boats, everyone knows what you're talking about. You talk about super tankers that haul oil, about cargo ships that carry containers, about cruise liners, about sailing ships, about motorcraft used for fishing. Some are massive, some are pretty small, but they all float on water, they all move through it. Despite the great variety, they're all part of a class. And in the same way, beloved, you can talk about birds. There's ostriches, quail, penguins, ducks, gulls, hawks, eagles, pigeons, wrens, sparrows, finches, an endless variety. All the colors of the rainbow are represented in different sizes and shapes. But we all know what a bird is. A creature with feathers and wings that usually knows how to fly. But now we come to God. Who is God? How can we know Him? Into what kind of class do we put Him? We can describe God's works. We can speak about some of His attributes, His characteristics. But the Bible does not provide us with a definition of God. He is so much greater than we could ever imagine. Isaiah says in chapter 40, verse 18, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with Him? In Isaiah 40, 25, the Lord asks, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like Him? The point Isaiah is making is that God stands far above His creation. He is not subject to classification. There is nothing in this creation to which we can liken God. There's no standard to which we can compare Him. God is unique. His majesty and His greatness are far beyond our understanding. One of the difficulties of the modern age is that we are reluctant to believe anything we cannot see or experience or understand. Anything that cannot be proven by the laws of science is questioned. That's why skeptics question the creation account in the first chapters of Genesis, as well as the miracles recorded in the Scriptures and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Such events are doubted because there is no rational explanation for them. Many people are unwilling to believe in supernatural things because they go beyond human understanding. 
In the same way, many reject the teaching of the Trinity because they cannot understand it. Yet we believe in one God who distinguishes himself in three persons. Why do we believe that? Because that is how God has revealed himself to us. It's how he has made himself known in his word. Already in Genesis, God gives us a glimpse of who he is. In the creation account, God says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. From God saying, Let us make man in our image, it appears that there's more than one divine person. But when he says, God created, he indicates that there's only one God. We see from the very beginning of his self-revelation, God gives hints about who he is. Yet in the Old Testament, the doctrine of the Trinity was not developed. Israel lived in the midst of people who worshipped many gods. The gods of the nations were a temptation for the Israelites. They were gods whom the surrounding nations made into images. They could actually see these gods. They could manipulate these gods. And so throughout Israel's history, God's people were attracted to the gods of the surrounding nations. Therefore, in the Old Covenant, God emphasized that he is one God. Israel's confession of faith was the Shema, recorded in Genesis 6, the verses 4 and following. And there Moses instructed God's people about who the Lord was. He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Israel was unique among the nations. They all had many different gods. Gods of fertility and rain. Gods that represented the sun and the moon. Gods of war, etc. Yet to his covenant people, the Lord made it clear. He was God. He alone. Isaiah 44 verse 6 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. In Isaiah 45, 5 and 6, the Lord says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that my people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. And so we too confess one God. It's what the Bible teaches us. In the New Covenant, the Lord gave further revelation about himself. What was concealed in the Old Covenant, was revealed in the New. God's people living in the days of Christ were presented with a real challenge. Jesus asked his followers this question, What do you think about the Christ, 
Whose son is he? The Lord Jesus Christ presented himself to them as the Son of God. Israel's leaders consider this to be blasphemy. There was only one God. Yet Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Our Lord Jesus Christ did not just reveal himself as God. Just prior to his death, Christ also spoke to his disciples about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Christ promised to give them another helper to be with them forever, the Spirit of Truth. After his resurrection, Christ again repeated this promise to his disciples. He told them to stay in Jerusalem to await the promised Spirit. Our reading from Matthew 28 shows us how Jesus commanded his apostles to go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. From this we see that the one God of the Old Covenant further revealed himself in the New Covenant. He made it clear that while he is one God, he has existed from eternity in three distinct persons. Now, beloved, this is not some harebrained scheme thought out thought up by man. It's what God tells us about himself in his word. Can we fully understand it? We can't. But it doesn't matter. In fact, it's good. It's important for us to know our limitations. It helps us stand in awe of our mighty God. Isaiah acknowledged that we are on a different level than God. We read together chapter 55 where this prophet spoke the following words on behalf of the Lord. He said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Yes, beloved, let's admit it. We cannot fully understand the Lord our God. The doctrine of the Trinity is beyond our comprehension. It's another reason to praise our God. Together with the psalmist, we say, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. We do not worship the Lord God because we fully understand Him. We worship Him because He alone is God. In our first point, we've considered God's revelation. Through His Word, God has made Himself known as one God who exists in three persons. In our second point, we'll deal with God's promises. In this point, we'll see why the doctrine of the Trinity is so important for us. God does not remain far removed from us. Even though we don't fully understand Him, yet He draws near to us. He takes us into fellowship with Him. He enters into a covenant with us. Out of His great love for us, God makes wonderful promises to us. Now, beloved, these promises were made to each one of us personally. Personally. 
In the last weeks here in Grace, you've witnessed the baptisms of covenant children. And at each of your own baptisms, the one only true God spoke to you. Each person of the Trinity addressed you. God the Father spoke to you as your Creator. God the Son spoke to you as your Redeemer. God the Holy Spirit spoke to you as your Sanctifier. God spoke, and He made wonderful promises to you. Very important promises that have everything to do with life, now and eternally. By considering these promises, we'll see how important the doctrine of the Trinity really is. At your baptism, God the Father extended to you the promise of adoption and of inheritance. He extended the covenant of grace also to you. God came and He said to you, I will be your father and you are my child. There's no orphans in the kingdom of God. God makes us part of His family. And what a wonderful thing it is to be part of the family of God. We may know that we have a Father who loves us. We have a Father who cares for us. A Father who has promised to avert all evil from us or else to turn it to our benefit. Our Father does not just care for us in this life. He's also promised us this wonderfully rich inheritance. This inheritance is better than any earthly inheritance. It's better than being left with a large estate worth millions of dollars. The inheritance that Father promises us is not of this world. He promises us an inheritance with Him on new heavens and a new earth. It's everlasting life, a life in which all the pain and the sorrow and the difficulties of this life are removed, a time of great joy, living in the presence of Almighty God, together with all the saints, a time of rejoicing in the Lord always. That's the inheritance that our Father has promised to all of His children. At your baptism, God the Son promised you redemption. He promised to save you from all your sins. Just as water washes away dirt from the body, so the Lord Jesus Christ has promised to wash away all our sins through His blood and Spirit. He's promised that He will unite us with Him in His death and resurrection. As Christ died for your sins on the cross, so you now also die to sin. And as He arose from the dead, so you also rise up to a new life. A life of following Him, your Lord and Master. It's because of grace in Christ 
that we may share in the blessings of the covenant. God considers us just and innocent because our sins have been atoned for by the blood of the Lamb. And so we see that at our baptism in the name of the Son. Christ testifies to us of the great salvation He has accomplished for all those who love Him. At your baptism, God the Holy Spirit assures you of His presence and His work in your life. He has promised to dwell in you, to make you a temple of God. He has promised to sanctify you. That means to make you more and more holy, to purify you. He's promised to cleanse us from all our sins through the blood of Christ and to work in us daily, to renew us more and more, and to keep doing so until the end, until the return of Christ on the clouds of heaven, until He finally presents us without spot or blemish among the assembly of God's elect in life eternal. These are the promises that our triune God has made to each one of us personally at our baptism. Promises that we may be part of His family, promises that we may share in His grace, promises of life now and eternally. Yet, beloved, all these promises are based on the doctrine of the Trinity. If you don't believe in the one God who has revealed Himself as three distinct persons, then these promises are not much good for you. Let me say it somewhat stronger by quoting the last article of the Athanasian Creed. It says, This is the Catholic faith. Unless a man believes it faithfully and steadfastly, he cannot be saved. Brings us to our final point, God's call. Beloved, the promises of God are real and true, but they're not automatic. God's covenant promises need to be believed. We need to make them our own by faith. It's what we spoke about in Lord's Day 7. Remember, faith is a sure knowledge, whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in His Word. And the faith is also a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation. It's by faith that we know God, and that we share in all His treasures and gifts. Does this nullify the promises made to us at our baptism? Does it mean that these promises are not real for us? Not at all. The Lord our God is faithful to His promises. God always keeps His word. The promises made to us at our baptism will always remain true and steadfast. God never goes back on His word. And yet He calls us 
to believe His promises. Just as they were given to us personally at our baptism, so we are individually called to believe them. Parents can't believe for their children. All they can do is be faithful in their vows and instruct their children in the ways of the Lord. As young people get older, they reach an age of accountability. They reach an age where they too need to embrace God's promises for themselves. In God's Word, the call to believe goes out repeatedly. Just think of the passage that we read together from Isaiah 55. God's messenger Isaiah said, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. Isaiah goes on to show how God promises the forgiveness of sins and eternal life to those who seek Him and call on His name. Beloved, if you're struggling with the promises of God, then pray for the work of the Holy Spirit in you. Then also give the Holy Spirit opportunity to work. Attend the worship services. Listen to the preaching of God's Word. Read your Bibles and meditate on what God has to say to you. Attend the Bible study societies and ask questions and seek to grow in the Lord and in His ways. Our reading from Isaiah 55 assures us that God's Word does not return to Him empty. Just as rain water, just as rain waters the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so God's Word shall also produce fruit. The Lord says, It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Beloved, please never reject the rich promises of the Lord your God. In our baptism, God has promised us life and joy and peace forevermore. These things are yours. Now make them your own. If you don't, if you reject the things God has promised you, if you refuse to believe and accept the things that God has said are yours, then it will not go well for you. For there is no salvation for those who ignore or those who reject the promises of our God. Salvation is not automatic. It's only by faith that we share in Christ and His benefits. God calls you to believe His promises. He calls you to live as His adopted child, trusting in His care and eagerly awaiting the inheritance He has in store for you. He calls you to embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, 
to take up your cross and follow him. He calls you to stop hindering the work of the Spirit in you, but rather to be living temples of his in righteousness and holiness. Why would you not respond to all this, to this call with faith and obedience? Who does not want to share the rich promises of our triune God? Tell me, who would refuse the promises of God and so as a sure and terrible consequence be cast into hell forevermore? Surely not one of us. Surely not you. Let us believe what the Bible has revealed to us about the Lord our God, that He's one God who exists in three persons. No, beloved, we do not fully understand it, but we stand in awe of the majesty and the greatness of our God. We worship Him because of His love and faithfulness. God has dealt very graciously with us as people. It's only in Him and through Him that we have life. God has created us. He redeems us and sanctifies us so that we might praise Him. He desires the worship of His people. Therefore, let us adore and worship our triune God. Let us praise and glorify the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's respond to the gospel message by rising and singing together from Psalm 145, stanzas 1 and 3.